This morning's scripture is from Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 6. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is the word of the Lord. We're starting a series today entitled Living Right Side Up. And the reason we're entitling the series Living Right Side Up is because we understand a reality, and the reality is this. Sometimes our world makes us feel like we're living right side up, when in reality we're living upside down. Or, to put it another way, sometimes our world is living upside down, and we're called to live right side up. It was on July 17, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. left New York City and was with his wife and her sister on a flight that he piloted to Martha's Vineyard for a wedding. For those of you who remember that event, it was tragic. It gripped the nation because the former president's son, who was a pilot himself, well, he lost what is often called spatial awareness or spatial disorientation seemed to take place according to the NTSB. What is spatial disorientation? It's really very simple. It's complicated, but simple. When a pilot is flying a plane under certain conditions, it can appear to him that the horizon is the ground, and the ground is the horizon. There's all kinds of variations on spatial disorientation. But one thing that's constant is this. For those who are experiencing spatial disorientation, the only way to correct it is to stop trusting yourself and to stare directly at the instruments that are telling a different story. Hundreds of pilots a year have crashes because of spatial disorientation. You can see what I'm driving at, right? The whole world around you appears to be right side up. And the advice you're receiving from the world, the culture around you, is actually sometimes just, well, upside down. 
How do you reorient yourself to living right side up? I think you live by faith. You follow God and God's commands even when they don't make sense. Even when the world seems right side up and you feel right side down. I think that living right side up is an act of faith and it's exercised every day. And I want to suggest a few things that living right side up looks like. The first thing that living right side up looks like is believing in an invisible God. Did you know what the, notice what the author of Hebrews chapter 11 says? You've got to begin by believing that He is. And as a matter of fact, you have to believe that He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Now, you may say to yourself, if you're in a science class at IU next semester, that sounds like a contradiction. It's not. That statement doesn't contradict science in any way. Think of it as a philosophical, theological statement about the base of all reality. It's not particular science. It's a statement that you accept by faith that everything that is came from that which was invisible, namely through the creation that was initiated by an invisible God. That's counterintuitive and countercultural. And in order to live by faith and to fly, so to speak, or live right side up, you have to start there. I think the second thing you have to do to live by faith and, and to live right side up is you have to walk with the invisible God in the midst of the dark. Whether it's the darkness of circumstances or the darkness of doubt, you have to believe the invisible God and walk with Him through that darkness. One of my wife's favorite series of books is a children's series that adults love too, written by Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie. She started reading those as just a tiny little kid and was enamored by them. Laura is the author of those books, but if you know anything about those books, Laura had a sister named Mary who at age 14, because of what they believed back then was scarlet fever, she lost her sight. And when Mary lost her sight, Laura's father said to her, Laura, you are going to now need to be Mary's eyes. And Laura said on many occasions, the only reason I can paint pictures with words is because I was my sister's eyes. She took her sister by the hand, metaphorically and literally, and led her into life, a life she couldn't see. It seems to me to be a good analogy to faith. When that invisible God calls us to follow Him, He leads us in places where we cannot see, where things don't make sense, but we're called to follow Him by faith. There's a passage in Psalm 
119, the longest psalm in the Bible, and the, and the passage is, is huge. And by the time you get to verse 105, get that. How many verses? Verse 105, and you're still not through the psalm. By the time you get to verse 105, you hear these words. Your word, says the psalmist, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In other words, I'm walking in the dark, God, and the only light I have is your word sometimes. Help me to follow it. Not only do we live by faith and live right side up by believing in an invisible God and walking through the darkness with that God, we live right side up by following the Spirit instead of our natural appetites. I, um, I begin every day and end every evening by reading a prayer. It's not a prayer I have read, written or a prayer I pray extemporaneously. It's a prayer written by John Bailey. And John Bailey created prayers for morning and evening for 30 days. And so every day of the month, you can read a prayer in the morning and read one at night. Last night, after getting my late night sermon together, you know, I laid down and I picked up my little prayer book and I read this prayer. Holy God, I have dedicated my soul and life to you, yet still. I lament before you that I am still so inclined to sin and so reluctant to obey, so attached to what makes me feel good and so neglectful of spiritual things, so quick to gratify the body and so slow to nourish my soul, so greedy for the present delight and so indifferent to lasting blessings so fond of being lazy, so unprepared for work, so soon at play, so delayed at prayer, so quick to look after myself and so slow to look after others, so eager to get and so reluctant to give, so confident in my claims, so, so low in my performance, so full of good intentions and so willing unwilling to fulfill them, so harsh with others around me, and so indulgent with myself, so eager to find fault, so resentful when others find fault with me, so unfit for great tasks, and so unhappy with small ones, so helpless without you, and yet so unwilling to be tied to you. Why do I read that list? Because the sins of the flesh, of our nature, are more than just actions. They're motivations and inclinations of the heart. Did you notice in that list how often he was speaking about things he was inclined to? Not murder or adultery, but the intention of the heart. Most of it is unseen. 
And that's what happens to us over and over again. We follow our natural inclinations, which are self-centered. And we don't follow God. So in order to live right side up, to live by faith, we must follow the Spirit instead of our natural appetites. Another thing that living right side up means is loving God more than money. Jesus talks about money more than you would ever imagine. If you don't believe me, just sit down and read the Gospels until you're finished with them and count how many times Jesus talks about money. It will stun you. You know why he does? Because he goes to the heart of who we are. Because when we think about money, we think about us. When we try to achieve money and power and fame and all those things in the world, it's all about us. And money frequently is the number one competitor for our affections. If we're going to live right side up, we've got to love God more than money. Jesus put it this way, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but instead store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves don't break through and steal. For where, says Jesus, your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I think you know that I'm not suggesting that you do your best to make a good income. I'm not suggesting that you are frivolous with what you earn and don't set any aside for the future. I'm not suggesting that you don't make investments. I'm not talking about any of that. Here's what I'm suggesting, which is what Jesus, I believe, was suggesting. You can do all those things and have your heart and soul attached to them. Or you can do all those things and have your soul and heart attached to God and God alone. What are the indicators concerning serving God or serving money? I made a list of things that I think I need to take an inventory on. I, I start out by saying, you know what, I don't make a lot of money, so I don't have the problem. Uh, yeah, right. It's a problem for all of us, right? So how about ask these questions? How much of your money is spent on stuff? How much you just acquire? If you were going to sit down with your wife or your husband and say, how much do we really need? How much of what you own would you get away, give away? Second question do you really look at everything that you own, everything that you own, and count it as a gift from God? Or do you think to yourself, I earned it? Third question I ask myself, how often do you think about God when you spend your money? Of all the questions I constructed, I think that one 
bugs me the most. Because my friends, I hardly ever do. Because when I spend money, I'm usually thinking about myself. And on a good day, I'm thinking about somebody else. But I'm almost never thinking about God. Or how about this question? Compare the time you spend thinking about money and the time you spend thinking about God. How do they stack up? Here's another way of asking that question. Do you spend more time thinking about your financial portfolio than you do about God and spiritual things? In order to fly right side up, we got to get a proper perspective on things and on money and that they are for the purpose of service to God and that's all they're for because God owns it all. In order to live right side up, we have to do something else that is exceedingly hard. Sometimes it's harder than the one I just mentioned about money. This is really hard because you've got to believe it in the midst of everything that says the opposite, and it is this. You need to trust that all things are working out for your good. How many times have we walked through difficulties in life and that is not what we're thinking? There's a promise in Scripture in Romans that said we know that God works in all things together for the good of those who love Him who are called according to His purposes. This is very, very difficult when there's nothing but pain that surrounds us. And it is also very, very difficult because we are short-sighted, right? We don't think ahead except when we plan for our own things. We don't think concerning eternity. We think of now and the pain that we're in. I love a quote by Soren Kierkegaard, Christian philosopher, who said, life can only be understood backward. Doesn't make any sense unless you look at it retrospectively. That wasn't the full quote. Life can only be understood backward but it can only be lived forward. Faith in God, when you believe that all things are working together for your good, you'll never understand it until you see life backward, but you must live life forward and hang on to the faith that you know is true. And that's really hard to do. The final thing that we need to live right side up in an upside down world is that we need to be looking forward to eternity. We must remember, we must remember 
that this is only the beginning. It's not the end. We have to hold on to the promise that again comes to us in Scripture. That these light and momentary trials, whatever they are, whatever they are, they're not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us in the presence of our Lord. Let me put it another way, my friends. We must believe that the resurrection is everything. Everything. It is eternal life. It is perfect. It is what you were made for. Follow the God of the Reformation of your souls, the God of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, follow that God by faith. I conclude by reminding myself and you that this kind of approach to life is not natural, nor is it easy. What's natural is to be short-sighted, not eternally sighted. It's hard. And some days, you're given the grace to see it and to live it and to believe it. And other days, it seems like it's a mirage. That's what I love my favorite Christ follower who when Jesus said, do you believe? He said, I don't know if the sigh was in there, but I put it in there. Yes, I believe, Lord. Now please help my unbelief. You know what we need to do to fly right side up? Sometimes we need to wake up in the morning and look ourselves in the face and say, you believe this so that we can. Not because we do. Because in the weakness of our flesh, we will not always believe. But by the power of the Spirit, we remind ourselves that we're people who walk by faith and not by sight, and we tell ourselves we believe in order to believe. Because faith is weak. And sometimes we just... Don't have it. Like a pilot with spatial disorientation, sometimes it seems like you're flying upside down. When you might be right side up or the other way around. You know what's common to faith and to those pilots? You just can't trust yourself. You got to believe in God by faith.
Here's what actually the author of the book of Hebrews says at the end of this flurry of encouragement concerning faith. It starts in chapter 12. But if I was rewriting the verses, I would let chapter 11 go a little further. Because at the end of all of it, he says this. Since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Who do you think they are? Well, they're probably the people he's just talked about. Abraham and all those people. You know, great cloud of witnesses. But I think they're more than that. I think they're they're a cloud of witnesses. They're around us all the time. You want to see the great cloud of witnesses? Just turn around. Turn around. And learn their story of faith. And you'll be encouraged to walk on. 20 years of preaching in this place has been an absolute privilege. Not always an absolute delight but an absolute privilege. And one of the highest privileges is looking at you every Sunday morning. A great cloud of witnesses that encourages my faith. The writer says something else. He says, don't just look at the great cloud of witnesses. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Don't lose your spatial orientation because life will do that to you. Focus, can I use the analogy of a pilot once again, on the instrument that tells the truth the incarnate Son of God who revealed himself in his word. And then you can live right side up on an upside down day. Will you pray with me? Lord, you've been uh, gracious to us in so many ways. You've given us your word, but you've also given us the people who are sitting next to us As we sit next to that person, Lord, perhaps we need to touch them or squeeze their hand because they're very real. And because they're they're part of a great cloud of witnesses. And on some days, they hold the faith that we lack. And on other days, we hold the faith that they lack. We thank you for community. We thank you that your word is true. And we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who we follow and in whose name we pray. Amen.